0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kettler. And this is episode 13 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 29th of April. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week?
1: Well, we've got a terrific chat with Russell Yardley. Russell Yardley is an old school technologist. Been around a long time. He... Talks to us all about what role technologists can play in the boardroom. Um, as advisors, but not directors. That's right. That's right. And uh, after that, we have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruen, And he's going to be talking to us all about evidence-based decision-making by policymakers. And he says there's not enough of it. And he propose, and he has several suggestions of how to get it going.
0: Yeah, one of his suggestions is very interesting. Just a trial, see if it works.
1: But anyway, first of all, let's have a chat with Russell Yardley.
0: Russell Yardley, I'm not sure if you calculate yourself as a geek or a businessman because you've been very successful in running businesses, uh, but they've been geekish, and yet you've come to the conclusion and are spreading the word that geeks are essential, but you don't want them in the boardroom. Why?
2: Of course we need Uh, deep technology experience around a board table. Um, But what we don't want is someone who is a geek and that is all they are. Uh, I wrote my first computer program back in 1971, a long time ago. And I love technology. I have, uh, in some areas, a reasonable, uh, deep appreciation of what technology can do and I can have conversations with highly technical people and if I take my time I can understand what it is that they're actually doing. But I think a lot of people would say I have a fairly broad perspective of business and I have uh, a good understanding of capital, of people, of innovation, critical things that businesses need to do in their decision making. So I am part of a pool of people that boards might consider in terms of selecting a board member to fill a vacancy on a board. When you fill a vacancy on a board, you it's not a general application independent of who's already sitting around the board table. Every board is somewhat unique because it's the combination of people sitting around the board table and it is that diversity and the ability of people to build trust and the ability to uh, really peel the onion to get to the bottom of issues uh, that is really important. Now, James Sarawaki wrote a great book, The Wisdom of Crowds, and he's a mathematician. So he was looking at how to analyse evidence in terms of the way in which people make decisions and spent a lot of his time looking at the the mathematics around betting markets and trying to identify what is the habits of decision making in those markets. And uh, James Sarawaki's conclusion was that if you had a group of people, each bringing personal and private information and independent information with others in that group, that the group would make a better decision than the most expert person that made up that group. So if you think about that as a board, the board needs to think about who do they need to have around the table to make the uh, decision-making as optimal as possible.
0: So specifications for a good director, today they would need to have an appreciation of technology, and understand its power, but they don't want to go, you don't need to have them in detailed understanding. They can get that from the geeks they employ then. Uh, I think that it's good to have, uh,
2: if your business is being uh, impacted by technology, whether that be through your competitors uh, powerfully using technology, or whether there are new models like uh, Uber, uh, you know, in terms of the taxi industry. Um, so, if you're looking at um, uh, uh, making decisions where technology is important, you'd like to have someone with a deep background in technology around the table. But if that person is just an an, you know, an incredible geek an incredible technologist and that's all they are, then they're probably not going to be very good at being a board member. They may be a very appropriate person to ask to come and visit the board and present to that board and help the board with an expert presentation. But the board members sitting around the table need to have both, uh, and my personal view is that that each board member should have at least something where they have a deep level of knowledge. But without the broad aspects, so if they know nothing about finance, you know, over the last 30 years, uh, the courts have said, you need to understand finance to be on the board. If you look at the Centro case, the federal court said, yes, the Centro accounts were horrendously complex. The comment was that you had to be an outstanding expert in finance to understand them. But the federal court, knowing that, still said every board member had to be able to understand those accounts because if they didn't, as was the case at that time and what the court case was about, the bad decisions in fact went to the very survival of that organisation. Now if you translate that from a financial subject and target to a technology subject and target, Every board member needs to understand the technology, even when the general consensus is to understand it, you need to be highly technically proficient. The board members have to have the skills to be able to uh, interrogate the experts, to be able to discuss amongst themselves, and to become uh, aware of the important issues in... uh, uh, making the decisions around technology. Why? Because those technology decisions can go to the very survival of their enterprise.
1: How much technological awareness is there in boardrooms?
0: Very little. And that that's pretty bad from a general point of view of the economy, isn't it?
2: I think that it's probably similar to 30 or 40 years ago in terms of the financial skills around the board table. And so the Australian Institute of Company Directors are recognising that this is that the capacity and capability of board members to make technology decisions is wanting. And so the AICD is beginning to look at how can they elevate the capacity and capability of, of board members to be able to wrestle with these very complex and very intellectually demanding decisions around technology. Every member is jointly and severally responsible for them to make and get to the bottom of what are the key issues for every decision the board makes, including complex things like finance and complex things like technology.
0: Well, take banks, for example, the online banking and that sort of thing. The way things are going, we're going to have instant payments, even international payments, done instantly. Technology, in a sense, has taken over banking. Uh, look, uh, if you look at
2: people, you know, like Jane Hemstridge, who's been on the uh, CBA board since I think two thousand and six. Uh, Jane has a very deep um, background in technology, um, beginning all those years ago at Accenture. They are very, very aware that. Um, The technology behind Bitcoin is actually going to the very heart of what banking is. If you think about what is the technology behind Bitcoin and that is the distributed trust chain. Banking is about trust. It's an institution that you can deposit your money knowing that there are certain rules about how that money is treated and how you can get access to that to conduct a transaction. What a distributed trust chain is is instead of having a very people-intensive process to know that that trust is worth applying, you put the process into the software. And so if you look at the distributed trust chain, every 10 minutes, there is an auction of people that have qualified to provide the storage of that distributed ledger um, by solving cryptographic puzzles. And they earn enough brownie points which are measured and they then can bid and 25 of those bidders are selected every 10 minutes to do a complete uh st- store of the ledger for that of all the transactions in that 20 minutes uh, uh, that 10 minutes around the world none of the each of those 25 machines that are selected and the the partners that are selected know who, who the others are so the the software itself has the ability to build the trust in the storage of that ledger. So if you go and check the ledger, it is near impossible. You should never say that anything is totally impossible. But we know that all of the criminals that have tried to break that trust chain for the last seven years have been unsuccessful. So therefore, we know that it's pretty safe.
1: uh, My impression is banking is one sector that is pretty much across technology now, but there would be other sectors that would be struggling with it. Yes. I would imagine the transport industry would be one. That that comes to mind. I imagine retailers might be struggling with it too.
2: Look, I think the retailers were asleep at the wheel. You know, some of our major... Ten years ago, uh, companies like uh, my own were presenting to the big retailers, and they were asleep at the wheel. And when you look at successful retailers today... (laughs) They are very concerned about that experience. Where they were wrong is that the buying journey started when they're sitting under a tree looking at their mobile phone. The experience starts with an online interaction. And so when you look at the retail industry, um, we really need to truly understand the the user's behaviour, the buyer's behaviour. And I think that they're just beginning this journey. Um, if you look at other sectors of the economy, um, you know we can see sophisticated use. If you look at transport and logistics, that's the cure egg Some parts of that industry are very, very sophisticated. Others, as you implied in your
0: question, uh, are really just beginning their journey. How fast do you think the directors of our companies are going to absorb the necessary knowledge. Look, I think that necessity is the thing that drives everybody.
2: And the threat of real sanctions, of real penalty for getting things wrong, uh, causes people to change their behaviour. I think when when you look at the Internet of Things, where we're going to have literally trillions of devices connecting billions of people, in fact, everybody. It'll connect everybody to everybody else. The potential for these systems to kill massive numbers of people in a a foul-up or a terrorist, an intentional foul-up, a terrorist attack, um, the decision-makers suddenly change their point of view. And that's when every director will say, I will make sure that I am well place, that I have the personal capability and the personal capacity to make these sort of decisions.
0: And that's why Tim Cook is so far out there in his battle with the FBI and Congress.
2: I am an absolute advocate for the Apple position on this. Anyone who is saying, no, the government should be able to get this private information has not thought it through properly. There has to be a thought about privacy. And the way governments have to deal with terrorists is that they need to think about how do we, in giving the right of guarding your own privacy, how do we still protect and and provide a defensive system for our citizens? Um, We don't need to give that break to an iPhone to be able to do that. Because once you do break it, you haven't just broken the terrorist's phone, you've broken everybody's phone. And that's what I think a lot of non technologists do not understand.
0: Russell Yardley, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Gary.
0: Good. Well, you know, Russell ought to know. I mean, he sits on enough boards, including uh, the advisory board for RMIT, as it happens.
1: That's right. And uh, he really knows his stuff. Very valuable, actually, his insights into the role technologists can play is really quite fascinating
0: he he was also one of the advisors uh, technology advisors to jeff kennett when jeff was premier
1: i remember that well and now to nicholas Gruen and and his ideas nicholas Gruen, uh, you're very concerned about evidence-based policy making tell us about it
3: uh, well, we have evidence based policy making in slogans, but uh, evidence based policy making is a, a hard thing to do, and according to the uh, according to the researchers of some pretty reputable uh, American public policy experts, about one percent of government decisions are made with any uh, reasonable amount of evidence at all. Uh, So what's really been happening is that you've had – it sounds – it's a nice thing to say. It's – at the moment, the catchphrase is agility, but you might recall – When Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister, it was all about evidence-based policy. So what are the things that were put in place then when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister to make uh, policy more evidence-based? I I don't know what they are. Uh, I don't think anyone does. So uh, we need to understand all the ways in which... It's hard with the current system to have evidence-based policy and then see if we can work on things to do to improve those situations.
1: What are some examples where government decisions or government policies have been created without uh, the use of evidence?
3: Well, uh, take... Job active. So job active is the new term for something which used to be called, and I think most people still remember it as the job network. So this was uh, the privatisation of the Commonwealth Employment Service uh, by the Howard government, early in the Howard government's term. I think that was broadly br- a broadly successful uh, change, but it, anyway, it came with all sorts of uh, problems of its own. One of the things that Seems to be the case is that if you place people in a kind of highly uh, penal frame, if you if if the whole thing is couched as we're checking that you're looking for work that it turns out that what evidence we have, which is still pretty weak, uh, suggests that for most people, not for everyone, but for most people, that actually harms our ability to get people back into work because it prevents the quite considerable amount that we've spent on service provision to people looking for a job. It prevents them from cooperating well and actually those services meeting the needs of the people who are, most of whom are genuinely trying to look for work. So... We have a little bit of evidence we should have the system should generate much better evidence, and we should actually then go with the evidence. We don't do any of those things uh, so that's one that's one example. All of the things that governments say that pretty much anything that you hear the government saying that it's trying to do, it really has extremely rudimentary evidence uh, about whether what it's doing will do it or not
1: what's led to this? Why are we in this situation
3: well. I think it's partly that we have a well it's what I call policy debate as cargo cult, so we 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 think that something like evidence based policy is a sort we, we think that the slogan answers the question of what you ought to do so one of the things that happens with evidence based policy is that there are there is a lot of going through the motion so there's no shortage of uh, all singing, all dancing, academic evaluations of programs. And what typically happens, and, and consultant evaluations of programs, and being being a consultant, I, I know about these, these evaluations. I've done some of them. And what happens is when you do an evaluation, you find out that the particular initiative that you're looking at actually hasn't been designed to uh, generate information about whether or not it's working Uh, So you might spend months, if you're a consultant, or years, if you're an academic, doing an evaluation, but the first thing you find out when you turn up for the gig is that the information isn't there for you to do anything more than wave your arms about and read the literature and dress up an answer, which is, look, I don't really know, but this is my best guess. What ought to happen is that when we set up programs to do things, we should be asking ourselves, how do we do that in such a way that the program and the way the program is run uh, actually sheds light on how well it's doing its job uh, and so on. Now, having said that, you can work out one of the reasons why evaluation frameworks and evaluation information isn't very well developed is that if you're running an organization, maybe you don't want to sweat on the results of whether or not you're achieving anything. So what solutions would you suggest? So... I've, uh, I'm about to publish a couple of articles in The Mandarin. It's an it's a e-zine, a, a, an internet magazine run by the publishers of Crikey, uh, which is targeted at the public sector, and it's called The Mandarin. And the first article of these, which you might like to keep an eye on, is um, on these kinds of problems. And the second article will try to say how we could do a, a much better job, and and Uh, I coin an expression, which is the evaluator general, and I then try and explain how this would work. So if you think of the auditor general, the auditor general, uh, and this is a simplification, but the auditor general is there to make sure that we get told the truth and to make sure that accounts are accurately kept and there is integrity in the system of public accounting and management. The evaluator general their job would be to make sure that that the same thing that that the auditor general does with integrity, the evaluator general would try to make sure we're doing with information. We're doing with information that is generated by systems to allow us to evaluate them, to allow us to evaluate, evaluate them both for the purposes of making them work as well as we can and secondly for the purposes of external bodies looking at funding these things, deciding whether they want more of it or less of it, and so on.
1: So the Evaluator General would be looking at the the evidence itself?
3: Well, yes, but that's right. But the Evaluator General, I, the way I see this is that the Evaluator General would actually have to have a more intimate involvement than even the Auditor General does. So the Auditor General is a, is a body that can at any time walk into a situation and check out accounts and all that sort of stuff, and say what it thinks of how well they're being kept and and how much integrity there is in the system. the way I see the evaluator general working is that every program would have an inform it would have informational needs so every program that governments run would have to have an evaluation strategy and a whole bunch of evaluation apparatus and just as the Auditor-General doesn't report to any minister but reports to Parliament and, represent, in a sense, represents the people through Parliament not and is not, in that sense, part of the executive, this is what would happen with the Evaluator-General. So the Evaluator-General would have some officers in every agency and uh, they would be the officers who, at the moment, are running data systems, or some of those officers, data systems and the sort of officers who would be producing or helping to produce what I regard as fairly dodgy external evaluations at the moment. And they would be there, they would be experts in evaluation, they would help the organization come up with really good means of evaluating its own performance and that would be built into the system. And, and this is really crucial, it would be independent, and the information would go to the organisation, and it would go to the evaluator, to, to Parliament, up through the evaluator general. So, in principle, the public could look inside government and see what was working and what wasn't, and how how pro, you know programs would be developed to say improve the performance of job active, and we could read all about it, and we could see whether it was having an impact on the actual you know on our on our measurement of whether job job active is actually getting people to work faster, uh, whether it's better report whether it's better reviewed by the. Uh, case managers, whether it's better reviewed by the the people seeking employment, and whatever else was in a sophisticated evaluation and performance management system.
1: Well, that'll be all fascinating to watch, and let's see if that if the government actually does implement something. Well,
3: like I I don't think they'll implement anything quite as grand as that. But I'll just just conclude by saying that I think the sort of thing that i'm talking about is sufficiently big that it shouldn't be done as a general policy i'd like to see it i'd like to see it focused in a particular area tried in 3 or 4 agencies and we could then see if it worked or how it worked or how it could be improved and then gradually grow it. So I don't, uh, I don't think that out of my fevered brain I can legislate or propose to legislate on the sort of scale that I've had this conversation. But I think we definitely need to build and evolve new institutions that can actually meet this slogan that we seem so commonsensical that we base the policies of 30% of our economy on evidence rather than slogans.
1: Nicholas Gruen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. Well, what do you think, Leon? Well, I think that's absolutely uh, interesting, really, really interesting. Obviously, there is an issue when uh, governments make decisions without actually checking through whether it's going to work.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, what Nicholas is saying basically is that a lot of policy is made on knee-jerk and what somebody thinks an electorate might want. Without uh, really working out the uh, the whole essence of it. Indeed. So now, the news.
1: Well, Gary, first of all, China's total debt load has risen to a record 163 trillion RMB. That's 12.56 trillion Aussie dollars. That's reached 2.0. 137 percent of gross domestic product in the first quarter that's its debt according to financial times calculations and that debt includes domestic and foreign borrowings and it actually raises the risk of a financial crisis or a prolonged slowdown in growth for australia's biggest trading partner now the international monetary fund has already warned that china poses a risk to advanced economies and these debt levels uh, uh, higher than in any other developing common economy but as the Financial Times points out, the worrying part is how quickly it's accumulated like it's 237% now of GDP, it was only 148% of GDP in 2007 and, uh, and, it had, and according to the Financial Times it increased 6.2 trillion RMB in the first three months of 2016 which is the biggest three month surge on record and more than 50% ahead of last year's borrowing. Now that of course comes at a time when Beijing has shifted to Towards stimulus to placate fears of a hard landing but the question is at what cost
0: well i think it's going to be largely um, you know considerable so should we be worried that the huge investments being made in agricultural land and property by apparently wealthy mainland chinese is to some extent money laundering
1: well indeed indeed and, and, uh, and but the issue is how many of these debts in china are going to be bad debts And how much is it going to sting the banks?
0: Well, we have to note also that the Westpac Group and ANZ have uh, not lending to uh, shaky foreign investors.
1: In fact, all the banks have tightened up.
0: Very much, apart from NAB.
1: The issue, though, too, Gary is that uh, the US share market is booming. and then, I mean, That's after the worst start to the year on record. And the rebound in the US share market over the past two months has again led to the question about what's going to kill off the current bull market once and for all. Since the middle of February, the S&P 500 index has risen 15%. And this week, it's going to reach another milestone despite a lackluster earnings season and recovery in the US economy that's viewed as the weakest ever. And the blue chip Dow Jones is now 3% so far this calendar year, while the broad S&P 500 index is up 2%. And it's not a bad effort for a bull market in its seventh year in the US. Unlike here in Australia, where the major S&P ASX 200 did fall into bear market territory earlier this year, the large company US stock index did not. Now, barring a complete meltdown this week, or a 20% drop putting the index into a bear market, the broader index will on Friday become the second-longest period of rising share prices in the U.S.
0: Yeah, and it's very strong, even considering that uh, Trump is starting to look like a reasonable presidential possibility.
1: Uh, That's right, and and so um, quite extraordinary. And um, now, it's also official. The Turnbull government has taken negative gearing changes off the table. And it signalled that home ownership and household wealth are going to become key election issues. Now, Labor had put the government under pressure when it released a policy to tighten up rules relating to negative gearing and capital gains tax. And Labor wants to tighten rules around capital gains tax and negative gearings, no longer allowing properties to be negatively geared from 2017. Although anyone with negatively geared properties now wouldn't be affected by the changes. And inside the government, there had been debate over which way to go. A number of coalition MPs, including former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, were concerned that changing negative gearing would, hit their supporter base. And now Mr Pernibull says Labour's changes will lower the value of people's homes, increase rents and stop businesses from investing.
0: So it's another sensitive point for the coming election.
1: That's right. and uh, But the Grattan Institute has taken issue with that and estimates the federal government could save more than $5 billion a year by changing negative gearing. And the independent think tank's property report argues losses from new housing investments could only be deducted from other investments instead of wage income. And Chief Executive John Daly says the government should also abolish the income tax deduction and halve the 50% capital gains tax discount.
0: Not before the election.
1: Well, that's what he's saying. So uh, the government says, no way. Malcolm Turnbull took to his blog and said, no, the Grattan Institute is wrong. Now, consumer confidence has fallen again. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index has seen it slide 3.5% in the week ending 24th of April. Now, I thought that was interesting because there were no clear economic indicators during the week. And I think that's because in anticipation of the budget, Gary. And anyway, it's fallen back below its long-run average. Consumer prices have contracted for the first time in seven years in the first quarter as falling petrol food prices drove down the cost of a market of goods and services. And now everyone is talking about the RBA cutting interest rates next week. As a result, the NAB is putting a bet on it. The Aussie dollar yesterday fell. And uh, in, as, as traders were putting on bets that the RBA was going to cut rates?
0: Some analysts are saying that if you drop it down to 1.75%, it's not going to do much good anyway.
1: Well, the issue is, too, that the RBA, Governor Glenn Stevens, has said he's in no hurry to cut interest rates. Anyway, back to the back to these figures on uh, pricing. The ABS stats said the Consumer Price Index contracted zero percent two per cent in the three months of the end of march taking the annual rate to one point three per cent compared with one point seven per cent at the end of december and more importantly the core annual rate after lopping off volatile items such as fuels came in at one point five five per cent which is well below the bottom of the reserve bank's uh, target band of two to three percent so that gives the um bank scope for a cut to the cash rate
0: yeah if it'll do any good and there's this spectre of deflation around us at the moment
1: now very worrying report from deloitte access economics gary they said their budget monitor says that the federal budget will be federal budget deficit will be 21 billion dollars worse than forecast last year which is a big surprise in election year with the rally in iron ore prices and although Deloitte access budget monitor says the iron ore price genuinely helps federal revenue write downs between now and 2018-19 will cost 16 billion with a bulk of them in profit taxes and then spending is up too versus official forecasts because there's more money thrown at the states and others to keep them sweet or less sour in an election year plus the usual cost of do nothing senate delays both personal income taxes and spending taxes are expected to escape unscathed, but profit taxes have borne the brunt of budget woes in recent times, and with shortfalls of $3.3 billion in 2017-18 and a larger $4.7 billion uh, in 2018, that is an expected change. And the upshot, says Deloitte, is that total tax collections are expected to undershoot Treasury expectations by $3.5 billion in 2017-18 and then a further $4.1 billion in 2018. And in an election year... The government has already reversed some previously announced spending cuts and the report forecasts that the 2015-16 budget deficit will be 38.6 billion rather than 33.7 billion forecast in December. Now, of course, in the lead up to the budget there's all sorts of speculation about what's going on and the latest reports are that the highest paid Australians are set to receive two income tax cuts in next week's federal budget, setting the scene for an intense battle with Labor, which believes scarce revenue should be skewed towards boosting services and helping people on low incomes. Now, as well as honouring a promise to next year abolish a so-called temporary deficit levy, which is a two percentage point tax increase imposed on earnings of over 180000 dollars the government is looking at raising the $80,000 income tax threshold, where uh, which each dollar earned is currently taxed at 37 cents which gives people two tax cuts on higher income. Some uh, corporate news. And the Chinese-led consortium looking to buy Australia's biggest capital company it has some competition from a local property fund, DomaCom. It's launched a crowdfunded bid to acquire S. Kidman & Co. So far, it's received $70 million in pledges to beat uh, China's Hunan Dakang's Parcher set $371 million bid for Kidman. And it says 5,000 investors looking to have a social outcome for their investors have pledged between $2,501 million for the bid. Last December, it was pitching a $410 million crowdfunding campaign to self-managed super fund investors to acquire kidman now the shenzhen listed company plans to purchase eighty per cent of kidman company and asx listed to rural capital australian rural capital will buy the other twenty per cent and all for three hundred seventy seven point seven million Now, Treasurer Scott Morrison has ordered an independent review into the China-led bid. He's also signed an interim mortar preventing the sale from going ahead for 90 days, so it won't be resolved until after the federal election. And the previous foreign bid was blocked last year because of national interest. Now, Kidman, founded 116 years ago by Cattle King Sir Sidney Kidman, has almost 11 million hectares of cattle stations, and that includes the world's biggest, Anna Creek.
0: One wonders if the same uh, decision will be made that it's against the national interest.
1: Oh, well, I think the Nats are going to be very strong there.
0: Barnaby won't like it at all.
1: No, he won't. He won't. Now, Australia's biggest milk processor, Murray Goldburn, has downgraded its profit forecast and the price it pays farmers for milk, and it's prompted Managing Director Gary Haloo to step down. The company now says it's forecast for a profit of between 39 and $42 million, compared to the prospective forecast of $89 million when it floated last year. And in February, the company forecast a farm gate price of $5.60 per kilo of milk solids, and that's been down to four dollars seventy five to five dollars per kilo and let me tell you gary investors hammered murray goldman yesterday their stock fell forty two percent to a dollar twenty four now despite restructuring and cost cutting video streaming pioneering firm quick Flix has gone into voluntary administration the Perth-based streaming service, found 12 years ago by CEO Stephen Langford, appointed Ferrier Hodgson as administrators, and the company's been handed over to the corporate doctors after negotiations with rival Stan, which is jointly owned by Nine Entertainment and Fairfax Media, which has a big stake in the media uh, business, failed to come to an agreement. Now, what happened there was that Stan took some uh, redeemable preference shares. Quickflix was saying, that's stopping other investors coming on board. Stan said, OK, let's talk. They said, Stan said to them, you pay us $4 million.'" If you want to restructure it, or you pay us 1.25 million and uh, hand us over all your customers.
0: Yeah, um, okay. I won't comment on that, but a lot of people would.
1: Yeah, well, with friends like that.
0: You don't want a case of leprosy.
1: (laughs) No, no. Now, France has secured the $50 billion submarine bid, beating Germany and Japan to build the next generation of submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. And Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull indicated that all 12 submarines will be built in Adelaide, although there's some debate going on about that. And there'll be a supply chain stretching across the country. Also, some components, like US-made combat systems, will be sourced from overseas. Now, the French firm DCNS was awarded the giant contract to help design and build the fleet replacing the colonies class fleet. And announcing the contract details in Adelaide, the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said the deal would generate 2,800 jobs. And Gary, the Japanese are wanting some explanations.
0: I don't doubt that because Tony Abbott virtually promised them.
1: That's right. Final piece of news, Gary, is that Apple's quarterly profit fell 22.5% with revenue declining for the first time in 13 years because iPhone sales plunged for the first time ever. Now, iPhone sales are critical because they represent 70% of Apple's income. And Apple Apple's net income in its fiscal second quarter totaled $10.52 billion compared with $13.57 billion in the same period a year before. Revenue fell 13% to $50.55 billion. That's down from $58 billion. Apple said it sold 51.19 million iPhones. That was down 16.3% from 61.17 million units that sold the year before. And the fall in iPhone sales is a big concern because, as I said, they represent 70% of Apple's income.
0: I don't know if it's cyclical or not, but one of the points about Apple is that uh, cash in the bank is $167 billion.
1: That's right. And uh, CEO, uh, Tim Cook, gave an interview in the Wall Street Journal when it happened. And he pointed out that uh, when they went to the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, everyone was upgrading. And in the later phones, no one was in a rush to upgrade. And that's why their sales are down.
0: Yeah, the they've just now introduced a new small um, iPhone SE. There's a lot of optimism about that.
1: So let's just see where that goes. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at Talking Biz or on Facebook. Next week, Gary, we're going to be having a chat with Andrew Brown from Jaganel.
0: Very interesting company in uh, local in Australia, and uh, I advise everybody to take a listen.
1: That's right. Talk to you next week.